This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If I haven't met you, my name is uh, Craig, and uh, I want to welcome you here. I'm one of the pastors here, and just want to let you know how great it is to have you with us today. And uh, you came on a day where we're we're celebrating Orphan Sunday. This began, I think, in like uh, 2002-ish in Zambia. For a number of years, it was just a celebration that happened there, and then it's really spread all over the world. And so uh, each year uh, on this Sunday, we uh, we do something like what you just saw. Uh, thanks. We do something like what you just saw with a testimony or video or something like that. Sometimes we teach on the topic, and I am going to do that today. And uh, we're connecting it to our series. We're finishing today's the last Sunday of a series called Proverbs for the Home where we have just looked through the book of Proverbs and seen how does the book of Proverbs address family relationships. So we did a whole message for husbands, uh, the book of Proverbs, what does it say to husbands? Whole message to wives. Uh, we did a whole message for, married, for marriage, what does the book of Proverbs say about marriage? Uh, then we did a message on what does the book of Proverbs say to parents? And last week, what does the book of Proverbs say to children? So uh, if you're new here and those subjects uh, interest you, uh, you can just go to our website and you can listen to those uh, messages. And today, we're going to finish with um, the subject of orphans. So Proverbs 23.10 is where we're looking. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. You can pull that out and turn to page 314. Page 314, and that's, uh, that's where we'll be reading from today. So Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11, this is God's word. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that your word reveals you to us. It reveals your heart. It reveals your, your actions and your, your deeds, your words, and Lord, we know you through your word. And so we pray today that you would speak to us, that we might get a glimpse of your heart for the fatherless, Lord, that we, uh, that we might see you as father that we might see the love expressed to us through the Son, and that you might speak to us all by the Holy Spirit in your word. Lord, I pray that you'd give me clarity and strength to deliver your your message. I pray you'd give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to you. Thank you for um, this opportunity to hear from you. Show us Christ and all his glory, we pray as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think this passage, as we get into it, uh, I think we'll see that I think this passage fits in well with our series on Proverbs for the Home because this passage reveals to us God's heart for children who don't have parents, whose parents aren't present. It could be by virtue of um, their death, um, but or some reason they are not uh, present. And this was so, uh, so, so important to have a father present in Israel or in the ancient Near East. Because in the ancient Near East, the way life worked was that it was the father that provided protection uh, for the family. It was through a father that one had legal rights 
The legal rights were given to a father. The, the father had, was given a voice for uh, women and children. And that's why when the Bible describes people who are vulnerable, it, it often will use the two categories of people who are most societally vulnerable, orphans and widows, uh, because they lacked male representation in a culture that required male representation to ensure protection and legal rights. So often when you see widows and orphans in the scripture, God is specifically addressing widows and orphans, but it's also some, sometimes something of a shorthand to speak of people who are vulnerable. As we've considered what the book of Proverbs has to say about the home, now we want to grasp what God's heart is for those who lack parents, for the orphan, for the fatherless. And this this passage teaches us that God's heart is for the vulnerable, and therefore we should care for them. That God's heart is for the vulnerable, and therefore we should care for them. So I'm going to talk about two things. Talk about God's heart for the vulnerable. And then I want to talk about our care for the vulnerable from this passage. Now, the passage begins with a command uh, not to move an ancient landmark. And it's a repeated command from the chapter before. Chapter 22, verse 28 says, do not move the ancient landmark that your father's have set. So whatever this landmark they're talking about, the first thing we know from the context, the chapter before, that it is something that has been set previously. In fact, generations before. The NIV translates ancient landmark, that translates it an ancient boundary stone. And that's very helpful because that kind of gets at the heart of what God is talking about here. It was a boundary stone. It was a marker for one's property. So this proverb has to do with protecting the property rights of orphans. It's hard for us to imagine how important property and land was in the nation of Israel. When God is talking about a boundary stone that separates a property, he's not just talking about a household. He's not just talking, or a homestead would be a better way to say that. He's not just talking about a homestead. He's not just talking about a chunk of real estate. He's talking about his very gift to his people. The land was God's inheritance to his people or their inheritance from the Lord. God gave Israel their land as a gift, as a place, the promised land where they would live and worship him and and represent him to the world. And so God gave Israel their land and it was divided among the tribes and among the people. It was divided and marked off by landmarks, by boundary stones. And it was passed from generation to generation. So while the text is saying, don't cheat an orphan, there's something much bigger in view here. It's that they have received an inheritance. They have received this land marked by boundary stones and and no one is allowed to take it. Sometimes people would sort of slowly take land from others. So they would move the boundary stone a small amount so that it wasn't noticeable and a little bit more. And a little bit more. Some people in the room golf and they understand this. That the ball is right there and they just kind of kick it with their foot. And a little bit more and a little bit more. And before you know you're a few feet closer to the hole. Or you're at least out of the rough when no one was looking. Well, that's... that's, uh, 
that's disgusting, but uh, this is far worse. This is far worse. This is sometimes a boundary stone could be moved over time or someone's property could just be seized. And that's probably what's going on here. It says, do not move the, the ancient boundary stone, the landmark, or enter the fields of the fatherless. So don't even give the appearance that you're going to wander over and begin to use their land, that you're going to begin to take some of their land and grow crops or take some of their crops even. Don't even give the appearance that you are going to take from them because they can't defend themselves. And so God has a heart to defend them. God owns the land. God allows a family to stay on the land in perpetuity. And so do not take their inheritance that's supposed to be passed from generation to generation. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament taught that once a family owned land that was God's land, that they could never sell it permanently. You could not sell your land permanently. And if you actually needed some money off your land, there was a whole system of redemption and the process of a redeemer that was, uh, that was enacted so that someone could temporarily get some money off their land, even though they could not sell it permanently. And I'm going to look at this a minute thinking, wow, I did not know I was coming to a church to talk about uh, Israelite property rights and how they were dealt with today. Um, perhaps you hadn't thought about that all week or maybe your whole life. But it's relevant here because it has to do with how God is protecting the orphan. So here's, here's how property was dealt with in Leviticus 25, 23. We read this. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. God says, this is my land. He's in essence, allowing his people to have a free lease on his land for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So This was a a way for family members to take care of other family members. That if you had to sell your property, you sold it, then your nearest of kin was responsible to come and buy the property back for you. This was called a redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is what this person was called. A redeemer who would redeem it back for you so that you could have your land back because you came upon difficult times and had to sell it. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So if you come into some money, you earn some money, you have the right to buy your property back uh, at a prorated value. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So the year of Jubilee was every 50 years. So every 50 years, all debts were forgiven. All debts were uh, you know, we're, we're totally uh, uh, wiped away. And so if someone had to sell their property earlier to get money at, 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 uh, at the 50th year or every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, that was returned to them. So the land could never leave the family. 
It never could. Now, in the case of the orphan, what God does in this passage is he takes the property redemption laws and he describes himself as the redeemer. Look at verse 11. For their, don't, don't take their fields. For their redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. And in the ESV, they capitalize redeemer because it's referring to God. Here's what he's saying. Look, in the case of the property loss, when someone had to give up their land, uh, then, then a family member, the nearest of kin, was to buy it back. Well, the orphan, here's the nearest of kin for the orphan. I'm that person, God says. I am the one who redeems their land. This land is mine. And if you take it away from the fatherless and from the vulnerable, the legally defenseless, then you have to deal with me. Because I am their strong redeemer. Redeemer is not just a religious title. There's a, there's a whole background to God describing himself as a redeemer here. And so he says, I will come and deal with you. He's saying that if Israel's social structure will not protect the orphan, then he will. He will punish those who oppress the orphan. It's a powerful statement. He will plead their case against you. You take advantage of them. You will deal with me is what God says. And it it just reflects a biblical principle that we see throughout that while God loves all people, that he takes the side of the oppressed, that God protects the weak. God champions the victim. God is the one who sticks up for the vulnerable. God cares for the poor. If no one else will, God cares for the poor. And we just see this pattern in the scripture. For instance, Psalm 68 makes a similar point. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He makes the point that the the, the fatherless are not ultimately fatherless, for he is watching out for them. That's God's heart. The widow is not ultimately left alone to fend for herself because he will protect her from his holy habitation. Now, we've been the last five weeks in the book of Proverbs. And so I want to point out several Proverbs that make this same point that God sides with those in need. God takes up their cause. Proverbs fifteen twenty five: The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. It's the same thing. It's talking about her boundaries or, or the, it's, it's the landmark stone. It's the same thing that God will protect the widow just as he protects the orphan to protect her inheritance in him. Proverbs 17, 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So God is saying, do not celebrate the loss of someone else's in someone else's life that brings them to poverty. And in fact, if you mock them, if you, uh, if you are indifferent to their cause, he's saying, if you speak of them in disparaging ways, if you self-righteously judge them by your comments, you're insulting their maker, is what God says. He is identifying. He's in solidarity with them. And say, if you, 
If you are unkind to the poor, you are unkind to their maker. It's the same thing that we saw in the scripture at the end of the video, that as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, Jesus says. Or how about Proverbs 22, verse 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. He says, don't crush the afflicted at the gate. The gate was the place where legal transactions took place. It's like the courtroom today. So he's saying, just because you have power, just because you have legal counsel and they have none, or you have better legal counsel and they have legal counsel that's somehow provided for them or whatever, don't you crush them when you have the power to do so. This is, this is not a modern problem. This has been with us throughout history where the powerful take advantage of the weak and use legal means and even in some societies corrupt courts to even give the air that this is just and take advantage of them. And he's saying, don't crush them. You rob them of life, I will rob you of life is what God says. This means don't take advantage of those who can't defend themselves. So the point of all of this is that God sides with the vulnerable so much so that he says, the way you treat them is the way you treat me. So God cares for the widow, the orphan, the needy. God cares and he is protecting them through his word. He's protecting the the weak in Israel through this command not to cheat them from their land. For God, their redeemer is strong. So that's God's heart. Let's talk about our care. Now, likely we read this text and I'll, I'd be willing to wager that there's no one in this room, probably, that has cheated an orphan out of their land. So it'd be easy to look at this and go, man, I don't know about a lot of the commands in the Bible, but I got this one. You look at it and go, I, I, I never even knew that was a category of sin. I never had the opportunity to sin in that way. I don't know. So we could look around and go, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. But I believe this text indeed does challenge us all. It challenges us all because when we consider how to apply the commands of God, we need to consider what does God call us to do in response to his commands. So when he forbids something, we don't fulfill the command by just merely avoiding what is forbidden. So by just avoiding doing this, it doesn't mean that I fulfilled God's will, that I've represented his heart. Think about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, you shall not murder. That's a very low bar. Okay, that's a very low bar. We could, many of us, most of us, all of us, I don't know, many of us, could, could certainly feel like of all the things I'm supposed to do, the one thing I'm not doing is killing people. Okay, I feel pretty good about myself with regard to that command. But it's not enough to just avoid murdering people. Implicitly, we must do the opposite. That is, we must value life. We must treasure life. We must protect life. We must, be, we must do whatever is our command, not only to kill people, but to preserve life so that people flourish in life. And we are to have a heart that promotes life. Jesus said that if you hate your brother, if you're angry with your brother, you're, you're murdering them in your heart. So we're to have a heart that is not angry, uh, not vengeful towards other people. 
um, that is not hateful. So to fulfill that command, we need, indeed, we need to avoid, avoid murdering people. But we also need to promote life in whatever way we can. And we need to have a heart that does not give in to anger and hatred, but promotes life towards others. How about you shall not commit adultery? So literally to fulfill that command, it means that if you're married, that you do not have sex with anybody except your spouse, nor if you're single, nor do you have sex with somebody that's married. So that's the standard. But it's not enough just to avoid that. The, 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 the opposite is what we are called to. Not only should we not, as married people, be sleeping around, but we should be cultivating a, 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 a godly marriage with our spouse. We should be cherishing and honoring and loving our spouse. This is why Jesus says to husbands, I'm sorry, what Paul says to husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He doesn't say, look, all I require of you is that you not be sleeping around. He says, rather, sacrifice for your wife. Lay down your life for your wife. That's the opposite of do not commit adultery. That's, uh, that's, a, that, that's live in a, in, in a covenant that is flourishing rather than breaking your covenant. Wives, honor your husbands. Respect your husbands as the church does Christ. The same thing. He's not just saying, as long as you're sexually faithful, everything's okay. He's saying, no, build a marriage that honors God, that's characterized by intimacy and care and sacrifice and love and devotion and treasuring your spouse and all that. That's how you fulfill the command not to commit adultery. And Jesus says, if you lust after someone else, that you've committed adultery in your heart. So there's a purity of heart. So we read a command. And then we avoid what it forbids, we apply its opposite, and we seek to cultivate the heart of the command as well. So here, specifically, we don't merely avoid stealing from the orphan, but we provide care for the orphan. We do just the opposite. We are to provide care. And in our heart, We are to cultivate the Lord's compassion for all the vulnerable and oppressed. What's the heart attitude behind this? The heart attitude is is this is a category of defenseless people. The Lord says, I am their redeemer. I am strong. I will care for them. So the heart attitude is, Lord, give me your compassion and your care for vulnerable people. In that society, and and in ours to a degree as well, it would be true, that, that two categories of those would be the orphan and the widow. But there are other vulnerable people as well, aren't there? That if we're going to have God's heart for the vulnerable, that we will care for the orphan, that we will care for the widow, but we will also care for the poor. God's heart is for the poor. We will care for the immigrant. We will care for the refugee. If we look biblically, God's heart is for the alien, the stranger, he calls him the refugee that's in the land. God's heart is for the refugee. And his people must have a heart for them as well. God's heart is for the unborn. If we think about defenseless people, who's more defenseless than the unborn? So it's a heart of compassion for the unborn, a heart of compassion for the dying. The person who lacks the physical strength or ability to do their, they're dying and they're, they're dependent upon others to care. There are those who are physically challenged, who have physical limitations or even perhaps mentally challenged in some way. They are vulnerable. God's heart is for them. There are are the abused. God's heart 
is for the abused, the, the victims of sexual abuse, the victims of domestic violence, those who are oppressed throughout the world, in some places worse than our own land, but here as well, those who are oppressed because of their race. God's heart is for those who are marginalized and discriminated against for their race, for their gender, for their religion or their faith. Those who are harmed or persecuted. God's heart is for the, and I, we could go on. There's other, I'm, I'm not covering every category of person. But, but God's heart is for those who are harmed, marginalized, defenseless, the weak, the poor. God cares for those in need, and, and we are called to join him in that. We see this in the, as long as we've camped in Proverbs for five weeks. I'm going to point out a few more because we find this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So here you get that, that same general idea we're talking about, that God identifies with the poor such that if you oppress the poor, you're insulting him. So he's identifying with them. And secondly, he says, he who is generous to the needy honors God. So that, that by caring for the needy, and needy is a broad category. The orphan certainly fits in the needy, as does the widow. But anyone who is needy, that as we care for them with generosity, that God is honored by that. So here's the idea that it's not just avoid one thing, don't harm the poor. Yes, don't insult them, but do more. Be generous to the needy. Verse, uh, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Which is an amazing statement because God has no needs. He's not asking you to spot him some cash until pay periods, paycheck or something like that. God has no needs, but we are actually giving to the Lord as we're generous with the poor and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22, 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. If you are looking out with a liberality to be liberal and generous with what, the God, with what God has provided for you. The bount, I like that phrase, the bountiful eye, an eye that is, is looking to be generous to those in need. Whoever has a bountiful eye, God blesses that, for he shares his bread with the poor. So the general observation of Proverbs is the person who is generous, God gives to them, cares for them, entrusts more to them that they can care, continue to care for others. That's the general principle that we see. So we see that practical care extended to the needy honors God and that God will bless the person who cares. God will repay him for his deed is the language that it uses. God will bless her for sharing her bread with the poor. We want to know and embrace God's heart and respond with care. So God's heart is for the vulnerable. He, in the case of the orphan, he is their redeemer He is the one who will plead their case against anyone who would seek to harm them. And we want to have that attitude so that we avoid taking advantage of the vulnerable in all situations and that we embrace serving the vulnerable with the Lord's heart. I think that's what this passage calls us to. So let me me make some application as we wrap up. So this is Orphan Sunday, as I mentioned. I'm going to start with a few applications there and then broaden it out. So how might you consider contributing 
toward the care of the orphan? That's a question that I believe this text asks all of us to at least consider. How might you contribute to the care of the orphan? Have you ever considered that God might want to use you even in a calling towards fostering or adopting? One of of the things I really appreciated about Eric's testimony this morning, and and same with the video testimonies, that nobody was kind of sharing this like, you all better do this or you're not godly as as I am or something like that. It was was not shared with any kind of an attitude because the Bible does not command that every family is required to foster or adopt. The scripture doesn't say that. However, I certainly think everyone should consider how might I be involved for this is the Lord's heart. How might he be calling you to take the next step? If you have questions about this, we have a table in the lobby where you can go. The Families of Hope, that is uh, the name of our uh, orphan care, fostering and orphan care ministry, fostering and adoption ministry, Families of Hope. They have a table out there and you can go to it and and ask. One of the blessings of our church, you saw a bunch of families in the video. So a number of folks have gone through the process of learning about adoption and have adopted. And for some who didn't have someone to guide them through the process, it may have felt like a journey in the wilderness. Like, man, we're trying to figure all this kind of stuff out. Well, one of the blessings is a number of people have already uh, cleared a pathway and learned and figured it out on their own, have pooled their knowledge and resources together, and that's a ministry in our church. So if that's something you're interested in, knowing about how you could foster or adopt, someone has already blazed a trail and people are eager to come around you, answer questions, point you in the direction you need to go, and help you. That is huge because many of them did not have that. They stumbled along and figured it out as they went. But someone, we have, we have uh, you know, that table can help you. It's kind of a concierge to help you where you need to go with uh, adoption and uh, fostering if you're interested in that. They can answer your questions. Maybe God's not calling you to personally do that, but he's calling you to come alongside a family who is. Maybe there's someone who's kind of in that training process, that pipeline process, and the Lord's asking you to come alongside and pray for them. It's been a joy to pray for families that were waiting uh, to adopt a child and have been in that process and uh, to come alongside them to, to pray, to get updates and to care for them as they are in that process. You know, there's a lot of families who have, uh, who are in this process, who have a foster adopted, and you, you could just ask them. One step forward might be, maybe you're not going to go through the process yourself, but you're going to come alongside a family and say, how could I help you? How could I pray for you? Are there unique needs that you're experiencing that maybe I don't know about that I could pray? Are there practical needs that I could help with in your family? Uh, what would support look like for the uh, adopting family? We are a family as a church. So when one family is fostering or adopting, that affects all of us because we're connected together. This is one issue, but we're connected together as a family. So maybe you need to ask, what could I do? Um, We regularly have different kinds of uh, adoption and fostering events. You could go to the table. I keep saying that. Go to the table. We just have a table out there. I was thinking earlier, we just have a table. If you want anything to know about anything about adoption or foster care, you just go to that table. We're just going to have a table. I'm at a table for every sermon I preach from here on out. So you're battling anger. Go to the anger table, pound, pound the table and get some help, okay? And 
Uh, you want a prayer, you want to grow in prayer, go to the prayer table and they'll pray for you. We're just going to have a table. That just makes it easy. You want to find out about evangelism. You want to find out about missions. You want to find out about how to glorify God at work. Go to the work table or what, we just got a table. So, but we have a table out there today that can help you, uh, whatever you might want to know. You know, sometimes we have on Orphan Sunday, we have highlighted not local fostering and adoption, but we've, we've highlighted international adoption and that sort of thing, or maybe not even international adoption, but international orphan care. So one step you could take is that you could sponsor an orphan in another country and provide with through monthly gift. As you provide, it provides for them. We've offered that on Sunday mornings before, but as you do that, it provides uh, food and education for someone. So that's a very practical step that you could take. Um, simply just asking God, how could I take a step to care for um, the, the fatherless, as this passage speaks about. I like what Tim said in the video where he said, you know, just, just take a step. Just take a step. Rob mentioned to me, sent an email to me this week where he mentioned in there, really the goal is for a lot of people to take a small step. The goal is not for a couple of people to take a massive step and everyone else admire them. Goals for a lot of people. That's the way it is with giving as well. Goals is to have a, a couple of huge donors that take care of the needs of everybody, gets a plaque up on the wall, a pew in their name, and a foundation. To start. Well, that's not the goal. The goal is everybody owns it and takes smaller steps as they're able. And the same is true in all serving ministry as well. So ask the Lord, how might he be calling you to take a step? Number two, how might you take a step toward the needy? So let me pan the camera out. Because while this passage is very clearly uh, about the fatherless, the heart of the passage that God protects the vulnerable extends much more broadly to all of us. So while this is Orphan Sunday, I think God wants us to ask about mercy and how can we extend mercy to those all around us. And I don't know about you, but when you, but, about how you feel, but the way I feel oftentimes when you look internationally or even locally, it just feels like there's so many needs, it's overwhelming. Where do I get started? What can I do? There's people all over the world that don't know Christ. There's people all over the world that are starving. There are people all around us that don't know Jesus and are troubled as well. There are so many societal issues uh, that individually we can address and that the church can address. So what do I do? Well, same principle. Start somewhere with some step. And here's where I would recommend. I would look right where the Lord has planted you to start with. I'd start with the church. See, sometimes we can be thinking about those in need in the city or in the country uh, or in the world. And well, we should, but we don't, we don't pay any attention to the person who is two rows over in church and has need. What is the kind of person around you that you could step towards in mercy? What about the chronically ill who suffer around us? What would a step in mercy to the chronically ill, uh, someone who's battling a disease, what, what would mercy look like to them? How about the widow, the widow, the lonely widow? What would relationship look like? for her or the widower, what would the relationship look like moving towards that person to show mercy? How about the unemployed, the unemployed, the person who has no income? And yes, we live in a wealthy society, but if you have no income, 
You're burdened. How, what did it look like to move in mercy towards that person? Maybe, it's, maybe you have a connection. Maybe it's helping them find a job. Or maybe it's providing some groceries for them or their family. What would it look like to move in mercy towards the unemployed? How about the person with special needs? Or the family who has a child with special needs? What would mercy look like moving towards them? Maybe it would be saying, hey, could I watch your children while you take uh, that child to an appointment or something like that? That kind of practical serving that moves towards them with relationship, with prayer, with finances, with a listening ear, with your time, with your practical help. Take an interest. Look around. Who in your community group? Or, or where are their needs around you? You know, sometimes there can be the sense, and I don't, I'm not saying this to take any responsibility off the leaders of the church, but sometimes there can be a sense is like the church ought to have a program for that, that everything ought to be a program. And we do, I'm going to mention in a second, we do have some programs. But you know, real body life is not what are the programs. Real body life is who's in my group? Who do I know? Who am I relationally connected to that has needs that I can move towards with the mercy of God, that I could bear their burden and it never makes it. It never even makes it to the program at church. It never, the program at church is never even called on or there's not some new initiative that started because I personally uh, represented Christ and bore the burden and did a, fulfilled a one another to someone who's suffering. So the church leadership has responsibilities to be sure, but we all have responsibilities organically to live and act like a family together. And that's what I want to call us to this morning. Having said that, there are tangible ministries you could participate in if you would like to. So for instance, every Sunday morning while we're here, uh, we have folks over at Bethesda Gardens, the assisted living uh, facility that couldn't be more than two miles from here. It's up on Legacy, north of Maine. Uh, and so every week, someone goes over there and leads music, and someone we have a little church service for them. Someone uh, speaks, and other people just go to reach out to love, to pray. And um, I had an opportunity to be there not too long ago, my wife and I, uh, on a Sunday morning this summer. And uh, it was a wonderful group, primarily ladies. And so we talk about the, the widow. It was primarily widows made up that gathering to worship on Sunday morning. And what an opportunity. So we have an opportunity. You don't have to go find a ministry like that. If you'd like to jump into what's already happening, you could do that. You could contact Tom Stack. He was the first guy in the video that spoke. If you don't know Tom, you could just email the church. And say, I'd like to find out about Bethesda Gardens or the assisted living. Uh, Because while there are people leading over there, uh, it would also be meaningful to have people come just sit and participate and listen and pray and befriend and show, 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 uh, show an open heart of interest to folks who many of them don't have family in the area and or feel, feel very isolated, can feel very lonely. It's min, it's ministry to the, to the widow. Um, I mentioned you can stop by the, the table today and participate in what we're doing uh, for foster uh, children for, uh, for Christmas or for Samaritan's Purse Ministry, the, the, uh, the shoeboxes that we give for, for children uh, as, as well at Christmas time. There's a table right out here for that as well. Uh, we, you can pray as well because we are beginning to formalize some mercy ministry. Uh, we're beginning to, to consolidate some resources uh, with folks who are connected and know how we can provide help for those 
who have need. F.J. O'Leary is leading that ministry. You're welcome to reach out to him. There's nothing really set yet, but we're going to have some, some things that we'll let you know about that you could jump into that provide mercy uh, for those uh, both within and outside our church. Any Sunday, you can make a donation or you can go online and donate to our benevolence fund. If you write a check and just, uh, you remember what those are, checks? A long time ago. Maybe you do it online. Everything's, some people don't even have a checkbook anymore. But if you write in the memo or if you go online, you can put benevolence fund and all that money goes to benevolence. Benevolence cares for those who have specific needs in our church and outside. Since we have moved to the square, we have many people that uh, more than we've ever had coming to the church, oftentimes in financial need or some kind of difficulty. And so that, that, that fund is used um, with discretion to care for basic needs like food and that kind of thing for people who have needs. But you can always give to the Benevolence Fund. Once a year, we have a benevolence offering. That's Christmas Eve. In our Christmas Eve evening service, we do a benevolence offering. Um, but throughout the year, you can participate. So that's something very practical. So that's kind of within our church. But I want to finish off by just saying, you know, we can look outside of the church as well. Who do you live by that has need? Who do you work with that needs the mercy of God, that is experiencing weakness? Their family is having some kind of a challenge that you could serve in some way. Oftentimes that is a doorway for the gospel. People are not projects. We don't serve them just so that we can, uh, you know, preach the gospel to them. We, we serve them because they're created in the image of God. And as image bearers, we extend his mercy to them. But oftentimes that does open a door to be able to communicate the good news to people, to share the gospel with them. Oftentimes the lead into gaining trust and relationship is through service, not through preaching, but through service. That's often the way it opens up. So who could you reach out to, or maybe you would like to be involved somewhere in the city, a place like uh, Frisco Family Services uh, is a place where you could volunteer and serve with needs in, in, in the city. So there are needs all around us, sometimes paralyzing, but we have to just say, how can I take one step? And today we're asking, how can I take one step towards the fatherless in prayer, care, support, um, that sort of a thing? How can I take one step towards those who need mercy, those who are defenseless, who are weak, or having need, who are suffering in some way? And why do we do this? I think that's an important question. Why do we do it? Because it makes me feel good inside? Because, uh, you know, be, be, because this is what we're called to do to help others uh, alleviate their suffering? Both, both of those may be true. But the ultimate reason we're called to extend mercy to others is because Christ has shown mercy to us. The reason that we move towards others is because we were dead in our sins and trespasses and God came to us. The Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That when we were unable to help ourselves, when we were completely defenseless, when we were in utter despair, unable to save ourselves, bound by sin, dead in sin, under the judgment of God, walking in darkness, he came to us in mercy. If you know Christ, it is because God had mercy upon you. God had mercy upon me. And so we're to be so aware of God's mercy to us, his salvation given to the undeserving, to the weak, to those who could not save themselves. You want to talk about, uh, you want to talk about inability and vulnerability. That is all of us spiritually apart from the grace of God. 
And God extended mercy to us. God extended grace to us. And now he says, as a recipient of our, my mercy, show mercy to other people. And so that is our joy. And if you've never, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, your response to this message is not go to the table or go help someone else. Your response is go to Jesus and ask for his mercy, receive his mercy, receive his forgiveness today. Trust him as your savior. Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus died for your sin, was buried for your sin and rose to defeat your sin and to give you a new life. And when you do that, you're joined to Christ. When you believe you are joined to Christ, he will dwell in you. His Holy Spirit comes to live in you to make you a different person. And he gives you eternal life, which is the greatest promise imaginable that you will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth with him. So there's that tremendous promise. But then there's also promise today that he gives you meaning and a purpose for your life so that you're rescued from the selfishness of living for you. And you're freed to live like what we're talking about here today. You're freed to be a recipient of his mercy and to extend that mercy to others. You're free to live a life on purpose that in whatever you're doing in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood, uh, in your recreation, in your job, whatever you are giving yourself to do, you live for God's purpose in that and you extend his mercy to others and care for others. You build relationship with others to serve them for their good, that they might flourish and that you might communicate when he opens the door, the good news that the same mercy you've received, they may receive as well. That's why we're called to do this. Not because we can make ourselves acceptable to God by showing mercy to others. We can't. We only receive his mercy by faith and then are changed to extend that to others. To the orphan, to the widow, to those all around us and those across the globe who are suffering, who've yet to hear of the gospel, who have need. God calls us to trust and to follow him and to take a step of faith to make a difference in someone's life. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g